Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast for the Canadian Journal of Emergency Nursing. I am super fortunate to be joined today by June Zulo, who has a, an, a publication in our upcoming edition here for the spring-summer of 2022. Thank you for joining me, June. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me. Before we get started talking about your great article, what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to get uh, the opportunity to for our listeners and our viewers to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us uh, where did you train and where do you work? Uh, I finished my uh, undergrad in nursing uh, from formerly Ryerson University. It's been renamed the Toronto Metropolitan University uh, in Toronto, Ontario. And um, just uh, that was completed in 2010. And just recently, I finished a graduate degree in nursing uh, through Athabasca University. Um, so that is a part of my training and um, where I've worked. I call myself a career emergency nurse. I knew I wanted to be an emergency. When, I'm not even sure why, but it's, it is quite fitting for my uh, personality and, and the way I sort of uh, work. Uh, but I've always worked in emergencies since 2010, since graduation. I've worked across uh, Toronto and a few different places. And now I've uh, settled in Durham region, uh, which is just outside of Toronto, um, working in a pretty large emergency there. Very good. What, uh, what made you want to do a graduate degree? Um, I think I, I, as much as I wanted to always be an emergency nurse, I know that, um, you know, as we age and my, my mom is a nurse. And so just uh, hearing the sorts of complaints about back pain and shoulder issues. And so I, um, sort of knew that at some point in my life, I needed to transition, um, a little bit more out of, uh, emergency nursing and bedside nursing and look more towards, um, a role as a nurse educator. And although those opportunities exist in hospital settings, um, I really was more interested in, um, academia, teaching nursing students. I've always precepted. I like that. Um, so, um, currently I, I am sort of doing kind of wearing both hats, but I have, I really, I still work in emergency weekly. Um, I really still love it. That's excellent. <laughs> it's going to be hard to, it's <laughs> going to be hard for me to cut that cord. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good for you. That's great. Can you tell us a bit about where your project started? I guess, first of all, what is your, your project and then the, your subsequent publication and, and what, uh, what made you want to undertake that work? So as part of the, of the graduate degree, you sort of have to decide whether or not you want to do maybe nursing nurse practitioner or just get um, like a master of nursing, just kind of coursework. I knew I wanted to stick with academia and I was thinking, well, I, I want to start looking into research. This stuff, I like reading research articles and I want to, I want to be that person that sort of is able to uh, put new work and new literature and new findings out in the world. And so um, I chose a thesis route. And one of the first things they ask you is, What's, what do you want to research? And of course, when you're starting it at, in grad school, you're like, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what's important. How do you choose anything? Um, and so um, what typically happens is people choose things that are relevant to their field, things that they're interested in, uh, things that they know. And of course, I know emergency. Um, at that point, it was maybe seven, eight years I was already working as a nurse. So 
had a lot of content. And simultaneously at that time in the institution I was working at, they were kind of undergoing a big public relations crisis. They had um, not necessarily misdiagnosed, but there was a a missed diagnosis and a pediatric patient. That patient ended up in uh, the hospital for sick children, the the large children's hospital in Toronto. And um, maybe about a week later, another child also, whether they were misdiagnosed or something was a missed finding, they also ended up at the hospital for sick children. And coincidentally, and unfortunately for this institution, they were uh, roommates. (laughs) And so these two moms from Durham region started a Facebook group. Uh, And this Facebook groups um, was sort of like, what happened to you? And they started talking about uh, incidents with their children. And as an open forum, it allowed community members to also join the group and uh, give their commentary or feedback about their experiences in this emergency department. And so I, um, I was sort of under, under like experiencing that at that time. And there was a lot of talk and we didn't really feel a lot of support from management. Uh, There was a lot of threats that were put on this Facebook forum and it was really left unaddressed. And so um, as someone who's worked in a few emergencies, uh, you know, there's always, uh, our Google reviews are not very high, <laughs> so and, and, you know, all yes. emergency Google reviews <laughs> are not very high. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and you know, people are s- sometimes, uh, quick to put in complaints, but a little bit more, um, unwilling mm-hmm. to put in the good feedback. Right. And yeah. so we know that we know that we, uh, serve our community in a positive manner, but of course, when you're hearing constant negative things. And so at that time, um, it, those tensions were high among staff, tensions were high among um, the, the community, the, the patients that we were serving at that time. Um, and so um, at that time, we talked a lot about verbal abuse. I thought a lot, a lot about verbal, verbal abuse. And I was sort of looking at that literature about, uh, about verbal abuse in emergency departments, recognizing that it was very, very prevalent internet globally. And so um, that's sort of what I started, uh, that's how I sort of started the ball rolling. And, um, when I was doing literature review, I came across a term called occupational disappointment, which, um, I thought, oh, I should probably look into this. This is something I'm going to look at. Yeah. Well, very good. That is a backstory. I didn't realize that's yeah. fascinating that that happened. That is such a challenging situation, both for mothers, patients, but man, for a department to be singled out like that. That's, mm-hmm. that's such a challenge. Okay. Can you tell me about about your review? What kind of review did you do? How did it go? What did you learn about the process? Then also, what kind of new knowledge were you able to assemble? Um, Well, like looking at the review, again, we recognize that verbal abuse is not unique to where we work. Um, And so when I started looking, uh, when I started doing interviews with Mm -hmm. uh, staff members, um, I recognized that, you know, they are... um, they are experiencing this. They are. Um, they may not. They may not have recognized it was occupational disappointment. Perhaps they were thinking it was. Oh, it was more related to burnout. Um, but I see that there is uh, a stark difference between burnout and occupational disappointment. And I think. I think in my head, and uh, because there's so little literature about it, like it's still, it still needs to be sort of uncovered and unraveled. But I think 
that there is certainly a link between occupational disappointment that if left unaddressed will eventually lead to burnout, uh, which eventually that which has its own um, issues that come from that. Um, the, the nurses I talked to all experienced verbal abuse. They had lots to share. And even the, what we submitted to the, to the Canadian Journal of Emergency Nursing was not as much as I have. There is so much more, you know, I mean, there's like word limitations. And so we had, so we had to be very, very choosy about what we were, um, um, putting in and submitting. But um, from the research, I know that each nurse experienced occupational disappointment, each nurse experienced verbal abuse and occupational disappointment from it. And they had their own contributions of what, what should be done and, um, y- you know, and how they experienced it and how they responded to it. And I think the responses of it were concerning because uh, nurses are, you know, they're, they're in order to sort of mitigate their own feelings with, but with occupational disappointment, they are, they are doing things. Their practice changes a little bit. Uh, sometimes they're leveling some punitive measures against patients. You know, I'll make you wait a little bit longer or, or you, you know, I won't give you as much care as I would for someone else. Right. And so those responses are concerning, you, you know, like, and, we need to figure out a way to address it. We need to figure out both the verbal abuse and the way nurses respond to it. Yeah. That's very interesting. Given your, your in-depth, you know, this expert knowledge really that you've generated, I'm sure there aren't, there aren't many emergency nurses that have the, the depth and the breadth of knowledge that you do for verbal abuse and occupational disappointment. What, um, what do you recommend, you know, the bedside nurses do when they experience um, the sort of verbal abuse or, you know, really challenging interactions with patients? Oh, it's difficult because I think there are there are answers, but there's not opportunities given mm-hmm. and afforded to um, nurses. Um, I, I think the implications for bedside nursing is that one, they need to know their policies in regards to harassment or abuse in the workplace. We know how to run, uh, you know, uh, an infusion for Levo. We look at policies for that. We look, we look at policies of how to run DILT or how to push it. We look at policies for how to access uh, central lines. We look at all these policies for how to run blood, you know, and we always like, if you're unsure, look at the policy. And not once has anyone said, look at policy for how to deal with verbal abuse. And I, I like, I know it's not clear cut because every situation is different, you know? And so you may encounter verbal abuse from a patient who's under the influence and you're sort of like, okay, this is okay. But you know, when it's from someone who is just sort of angry about wait times and things like that, you know, it seems a little bit more unacceptable, but nevertheless, whatever the situation that led to that, we don't know how to handle it properly. Everyone has their own way whether it's right or wrong or who is right or wrong, who knows, right? But we don't have something to turn to. And so I would say if there is an, a policy or a procedure or some sort of statement that is put out, usually in an organization, there is going to be some sort of 
literature about it. Be aware, look for it, know what it says, um, and know the sort of steps to take would be sort of the first thing that uh, I would recommend for nurses um, or the implications for nursing. Um, I would say also if there are opportunities for, you know, engaging in additional learning or continuing education for uh, mitigation of violence, uh, learning how to improve your skills for crisis uh, situations, take those opportunities. A lot of those opportunities are not mandatory. And so in eMERGE, uh, you know, uh, BLS, CPR is mandatory, ACLS is mandatory. And really what should happen, it should be this crisis mitigation should be mandatory. It should be as long, as often as you're renewing those those skills on, uh, you know, cardiac life-saving measures, you should be renewing your skills or should be uh, an expectation that staff are also renewing those skills for uh, workplace violence. Yes. Uh, this is number one, it's not new. And there's enough literature out there that even with the onset and the duration of the COVID pandemic, that violence and abuse has, certain, has certainly increased over during this period of time. It's not going away. And yeah. so- uh, you know, they, it should be, um, if it is an opportunity for nurses in emergency departments to take up that um, extra education for, uh, you know, uh, violence and uh, figuring out how to deal with that uh, violence and verbal abuse, take it. Don't, even if it's um, optional, take it because it's only going to improve your ability to uh, manage these sort of incidents. Yeah. Well, that's a very good point. That's, um, I think it, it also speaks to how important, you know, the provider safety and provider wellness does need to have a role in the healthcare system because it's hard to have a sustainable system if providers don't feel safe, if they're unwell, if they're absent from work, you know, burning out, Huge. things like this. And, and that's only highlighted now, like it's, <laughs> it's so discussed now, you know, with the yeah. pandemic and, and uh, it's always been there. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm not happy for the pandemic, but I'm happy that like, it's sort of being talked about It's sort of being uh, talked about in the forefront now, because it's always been there. It's about time we address these sorts of issues because yeah, we have a big problem right now. I'm sure it's, uh, um, you know, across the board in Canada, yes. but it's across the board everywhere. You know, there is a big problem with retention, um, and, uh, you know, if if nurses are going into the field and then being and then thinking, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. Like, let's do something else where I don't need to be abused. Right. You know, where I can have support, like, let's do something else. You know, that what happens is you and you lose a lot of staff. Um, and of course, this issue is only exacerbated by COVID. Right. Yeah, so it's. It's a lot. And I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, at least there's a bit more media attention about it. I am. Yeah. I'm happy as well. Do you have, do you have a personal approach? So if you're at triage or, you know, take a patient back into a care space and they start to be, you know, verbally abusive, let's say they cross the line that you're not, it's not appropriate. You're not dismissing it because it's related to their organic brain disorder or their dementia or their intoxication. You believe that, you know, this is the, your interaction is constitutes verbal abuse. How do you approach it within your practice? Uh, uh, 
in my practice, I mean, it's easy for me to say what I do, right? It may not be always the right approach, right? And so who knows what is the right approach. But in my practice, I know that, uh, you know, fighting with them doesn't really go anywhere. I I usually try to start with, uh, try to be like, kill them with kindness, you know, um, in triage, it's a little bit easier because they're only there for a certain limited time and then they move on to the next step. Right. So I'm not going to engage in this. Um, I always kind of have in the back of my mind that, you know, people are just not innately like this. They don't come off, um, guns blazing normally. There's usually something that is a trigger that has set them off. Usually it's related to wait time. Probably it's related to the fact that they are, you know, here in emergency and there is something the matter with them, whether it's pain related, they're unwell, you know, those are things uh, (laughs) at home, you know, if I'm uh, unwell, I might be a little bit more snippy and short, you know, with my husband. But um, so I do have to recognize that, you know, these are these are people who are undergoing, you know, their own issues right now. I try to take, um, like a sort of step back approach. I don't really try to argue with them. I try to kill them with kindness and just try to be supportive. Uh, people generally in emergency want to feel like they're being listened to. Uh, you know, emergency is, you know, that place where you like rush, rush, rush to get in. And then once you're in, you rush, rush, rush to get out. And so, um, I know that's sort of the nature of this, right? But I guess that comes with experience. Um, in you know my younger years, I might have been a bit more impatient. I may have been a bit more um, uh, argumentative. Um, but nowadays, no, I just I'm just a bit more uh, relaxed with it. Just sort of think about the reasons why they're there and just sort of move forward. Um, you know, if, if it escalates, of course, you have to know your resources, you have to recognize that, you know, security is a phone call away, maybe you need to finish your triage, maybe you need to finish your conversation with security present. And that's okay, too. Uh, That's just for the safety of everyone. That sounds like a, yeah, sounds like a, an experienced, yeah, well thought out approach. I think like acknowledging patient perspectives, sounds really great acknowledging, you know, putting yourself in their perspective, they're having an emergency. Um, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And also having some firmness of boundaries. You don't need to be abused. You don't need to be harmed in the nature of your work. And that's really insightful. I'd also like to know if, um, if you'd recommend anything to any sort of system leaders. If you're in a leadership position, you're running a sort of health authority, a hospital system, whatever it's called, and you're able to direct the policies and procedures around the treatment of nurses, verbal abuse, violence. What 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 would you recommend? You know, I do, I do have a lot of uh, implications for leaders, and I think a lot of the staff members that I talked to had a lot of implications for leaders because a lot of this is sort of out of our hands. Um, Certainly, uh, we can do a better job of the way we have conversations with patients who are, you know, stressed. We can definitely do a better job um, as the front line. Uh, Leaders can do a better job, too. Um, I think uh, as sort of um, as an adjunct to I was saying about um, having those um, like when you're doing BLS, ACLS, CPR, um, 
those mandatory education sessions and making it um, a mandatory education session for crisis intervention um, for nurses, that uh, also sort of translates to debriefing. And so um, we debrief those critical events, um, you know, maybe kids dying in an emergency, we debrief that. But maybe we need to debrief, um, you know, the physical violence and the verbal violence that happens. And that happens every day. Like we need to debrief uh, those incidents too. If someone's putting in some sort of uh, report, if a nurse is putting in some sort of report, then that nurse felt that it was um, like an incident report. Then that nurse felt that it was important that uh, that needed to be documented. The it needed to be you know communicated, and, and leaders should then come out of their offices and talk about that and talk about that not only with the nurse but talk about it with the staff on duty at that time and the staff that were related that were related to that incident at that time that needs to happen I've not once had a debrief about any sort of um verbal violence and um physical violence issue uh certainly there have been um incidents recently with weapons, but, um, and that was certainly debriefed, but why are we waiting for it to happen there? You know what I mean? Like by that time, you, you need to talk about all the, the, the things that sort of, um, you know, come before that too. Uh, I think debriefing those, those small incidents is going to, um, for leaders, give staff a lot of buy-in into what you are trying to change as a culture in the workplace that you're running. Um, I think uh, you would get a lot of support from staff members if uh, debriefing was incorporated. Um, additionally, I think uh, that that they should, you know, allocate paid time for that sort of education for crisis prevention. Um, again, crisis prevention was something that was sort of, it's sort of optional and it, it sort of fell to the wayside years ago. I've not heard about it since. Whether it's an opportunity in my institution, I'm unsure of, but I mean, I feel like it should be paid and necessary and mandatory for nursing education. You, you put me in an interesting perspective, like position. My academic and scientific areas of expertise is around life support, life-saving resuscitation, contributing to producing basic life support, advanced cardiac life support uh, uh, sort of training materials. And I agree. I agree that mandatory training around provider wellness and safety in the workplace is more important. I think that a central tenant to taking care of people in emergencies is that the provider safety must come first. And this is, is tantamount to that. This It is essential. I think this there should be a shift around, we determine what's mandatory, what's required to do your job. And it needs to shift probably away from, you know, you, depending upon the organization you're in, there's mandatory training to infuse blood. There's mandatory training for procedural yes. sedation. There's mandatory training, I don't know, for safe discharging or discharging with medications. Yes. Why is there not mandatory training to keep yourself safe at work, you know, to reduce your burnout, your, you know, your absenteeism you know, and stay doing the job longer. Uh, yeah, right. And, you know, uh, like those cardiac life-saving events is usually a team approach. You're taught in a team and yet a lot of the incidents with verbal abuse and violence you're often alone, right? And so you're often tending to your patients or you're the one taking care of this group in the waiting room, you know what I mean? You're often not really, you don't have a backup unless you pick up a phone and call someone and there's no button on the wall. You could call a code white, right? But 
I mean, just for verbal abuse, you know, you just sort of take it. And I think not addressing it, not making this stuff mandatory contributes to the fact that we normalize all of this. We think it's normal. And we think that it's normal to experience abuse in the context of working in the emergency. And it shouldn't be. Uh, the work you've done is really important. It's timely. It's important. I congratulate you on, on your work. I saw as well that you won your three-minute thesis as well, your presentation. Congratulations. How cool is Thank that? Thank you. Uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a feat, actually. I'd spoken with my mentor uh, prior to that. I was like, I think I'm going to do this. And she was like, no, don't, because I was defending my thesis, I think, an hour before. And she's like, I don't think you should do it. I'm like, it's just three minutes. And it seems so easy. Like, you either get it wrong or right. You can't pass or fail. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. So, yeah, it was uh, quite, a, quite a surprise. But um I think also it was timely for the time, right? Right in the height of the pandemic. I also think it's such an emergency nurse thing to do. Oh yeah, I can do it. I can totally yeah, figure yeah. it. I can finish. It's just three minutes. I'm going to do it. Then I'll move on to the next thing. You know, yeah, yeah. Just get this out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. We're, we we're really fortunate to be able to publish your work in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Nursing, to be able to amplify it in this way. Um, yeah, I'm grateful for the work that you've done and you're sharing it with the Canadian nurses. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, and thank you for uh, for speaking with me today and being so willing to share your work. Bye-bye. You're welcome. See you.